It's one of my favorite tunes. Whatever words you put to it, but those are beautiful words. We are wrapping up our series on the Beatitudes, and we're actually taking one little tiny footstep out of them, past them, but we're going to read, it may not, he may not even have it ready on the board, but I'm going to read the whole uh, beginning of chapter 5, and then we're going to focus on those last few verses, verses 13 through 16, about the salt and the light, but, but everything that goes before that is, is, is a key part of that. So, listen now to the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, guide us as we consider your word. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds as, Lord, we seek for your word to do its work in our lives. We love you, Lord. Guide us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you, how do you feel about the future? Now, I know you're sitting here in New Hope Church. That should say something right there. But I'm, I'm not specifically talking about the church. I mean, really, even just big picture as a whole. Let me put it another way. What is your relationship with the future? The natural state of, of human experience is that we flip-flop. We swing like a pendulum between optimism and pessimism. 
And while we lean one way for a time, the pendulum swings. And it happens to us as individuals, but it happens to society as a whole as well. Coming out of the Enlightenment of the 1700s, there was an incredible optimism in society. It, it, It was that the human pursuit of reason would solve all the problems of the world. We were on our way to develop an ideal society in literacy and education, science and progress. Even evolution would take us to the place where where conflict would cease, poverty would be eradicated, and the standard of living would increase, continue to increase for all people until everyone would just be satisfied. Even the poorest and the neediest would have all they need to live and to thrive. And opportunity for abundance would be there for everybody. That optimism grew through the 19th century and and into the 20th. The famous and first science fiction writer, H.G. Wells, at the height of this time wrote, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? that, That it will achieve unity and peace that it will live. The children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. That's, That's optimism. That was the age of idealism with the dreams of utopia. There was a book in that period called The Coral Island that was written in the 1850s. And it was about a group of young English schoolboys who got shipwrecked on an island where they would build a whole new world and a society of paradise and and love and equality. And as, as time went on, strands of this kind of optimism continue all the way into our age, particularly here in this most optimistic of lands, the United States of America, which itself is a product of this enlightenment optimism in the age of reason. For the most part, this optimism, though, came all crashing down in the 20th century, two world wars, and the pessimism of the modern and the postmodern world. Just 20 years after H.G. Wells wrote that optimistic view of the world, he he got hit with some reality, and he, he himself wrote, Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. And in the 1960s, a famous book with a very similar plot to The Stranded Schoolboys became today's required high school reading, The Lord of the Flies. This time, though, the kids, instead of working together to build a utopia, they fight over power and they end up killing each other. While there are vestiges of optimism in our world, for the most part, they have played out. And we've moved into a postmodern world that is growing more cynical and skeptical 
each generation, cynical of, of real progress in any way, cynical in the arts, cynical in the sciences and the, and the doctors, cynical of any authority, cynical of government and institutions, cynical of religion, particularly organized religion, and cynical of really any claims of truth or any really hope beyond what I can just grasp in the moment. And that cynicism has been growing and growing in our society and, and, and turned into a deep trust, distrust of anyone who sees things differently than ourselves. And every shooting, every scandal, every conflict, and every fear and devastation simply seems to make us more cynical and pessimistic, both as a society and, and sometimes as individuals we can get overwhelmed by things as well. I, I feel like I've even seen your faces just kind of get gloomier as I've been listing these things. Because it's not, just a, it's not just a macro societal thing that this pendulum swings back and forth in. It, it happens in a personal way as well. No matter how optimistic a person you may be, sometimes you're going to get hard, hit hard with some, some reality, with a with a no or a rejection or a, a failure or a loss or a broken dream. And, and we can get down and get kind of bowled over by life. Or as some of us tend to be more pessimistic and, and as pessimistic, pessimistic as we can be, we can still be looking for that one hope, that, that silver lining where we still grasp for it. And we have our moments of joy, our moments of hope. And, and we always are fighting to have that, that longing for an enduring hope. From whether, wherever we start, from pessimism or optimism, we can be ping-ponging back and forth between hope and cynicism. And our hearts and our emotions can become a roller coaster ride. And if we live that to the, in extremes, we call that manic depressive. Biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity has a completely different path than the pendulum, than the roller coaster. It's neither a, a shallow optimism or a dark pessimism. We're not locked in on the ideal the way the optimists are, looking for a utopia, or, nor are we overwhelmed by the, the real, the way pessimists are. What we as Christians always have before us is Jesus. Is Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the ideal who has become real. Jesus, he is the Logos who has become a man. He is God become flesh. He isn't just an ideal or just a harsh reality. He is the ideal become real. And by being the ideal who entered the, the real of the fallen world, he transforms it. And this becomes a whole different place. 
And now Christians are transformed at the same time. The greatest of idealists who live in the kingdom of heaven, that's what we are. But we're also the most grounded of realists. The realist who understands and, and can truly face original sin and, and human depravity and every aspect of the, the fallenness and the brokenness of this world without being crushed, even death. It puts us in a unique position in regards to the world. You might call it salt and light. That's what this passage is about. The passage does three things that we're going to look at very quickly. First, the world needs salt and light. Second, salt and light comes to us from outside the world to provide all of us what we need. And finally, God uses us, you and me, to be salt and light that the world needs. This is, the, the, this is our great adventure, but it so helps to understand who we are in the context of where the world is at on the roller coaster of optimism and pessimism of the ideal and the real, to see, that, to see how we, how, how this is something different and so important. And, and that is our great adventure of what we're doing here. This is what we're doing here. We're salt and light. So let's, let's step back. First, the world needs salt and light. The world needs salt and light. If there's nothing else this past few years of COVID had told us, had showed us, at least we get this loud and clear. The world is fragile. It is vulnerable. And it's, and it's a mess. Jed, our youngest son, asked me a few years ago about sonic booms. Do you remember sonic booms? He'd been reading about them, and he'd asked if I'd experienced them. And I grew up on the Southern California coast, and planes would take off from, I, I'm assuming, El Toro Marine Base or even Edwards Air Force Base, and they would go out over the ocean. And virtually every day, I remember, it was part of life then, there would be, we got used to be these loud, window-shaking booms. And they would happen all the time. It was part of living in the, the Cold War and the Vietnam era. And, and we also had the practice of getting ready for nuclear attacks in, in school and hiding under our little desks. And, and the, world, world felt, the world felt fragile then. But Jed and I continued to talk about it and how it, it felt for a very short period that, that that threat of annihilation had gone away when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it felt like there was just this moment of optimism. We won that war, that, that war which seemed to be the only real threat to destroy humanity. But very quickly, we found a whole bunch of other things to fear. And nuclear weapons didn't just disappear. Neither did conflicts between nations and leaders and, and politicians. But we've also been learning a whole bunch more about a whole, whole other raft of threats. 
we, have, we had some friends when we were in, in Buffalo, and they, they would call themselves survivalists. And we learned about this whole survivalist culture. And, there's, and it's not just that people are getting ready for some form of apocalypse. There's a whole bunch of different kinds of survivalists. They were um, economic survivalists, ready for an economic collapse. But they would tell us about, uh, oh, political survivalists and biological survivalists and, and all the threats that are before us, including zombie survivalists. But all sorts of threats that we, we have, in, in, we, and we have saw the last few years, a biological threat itself as well. And these fragilities and these vulnerabilities have shown us, left to themselves, things fall apart. When we lived in Pittsburgh, we owned a house that was built in the 1880s, and a wood frame house. And I have to tell you, I discovered how much of a race it was just to keep up. Uh, not, not to make it better, but just, just to keep it from falling apart. Our world in each one of us is the same way. Salt. Salt is a preservative. Salt keeps things from going bad right away. And lamps. Lamps are a little cup of oil with a wick floating in them. Have you ever been far outside of a city? Particularly, even far outside of a town on a, on a cloudy night with no stars, no moon, no glow of the city. It is utterly dark. The world needs salt and light to survive. Every part of life takes a great deal of energy just to survive. Otherwise, it falls apart. Relationships and marriages take work. If you don't take care of them, they just diminish. And it, even our own psychology, our own selves, if we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to be able to keep going. We're not just naturally happy. It takes salt and light. It's the second law of thermodynamics. If we don't, energy dissipates. It runs down and it runs out. And when, and when thought of on a grand scale with everything, we understand that things will go to pieces if left to themselves. Now that may sound like real pessimism, but in light of what's coming, it is Christian realism. Just as the reality of sin is. The Bible understood that from the beginning, the presence of sin in our world and, and the consequences of inevitable death. But this truth without God leads to pure skepticism, to, to ultimate cynicism and pessimism, nihilism even. That, that's, that says that that's all there is. Just that reality and that it, everything's going to dissipate into nothingness in time. And love and joy are just chemical reactions that don't mean anything. But... And that's the most important adversative but. But, but we believe that something from outside this world comes in to save us. That God sent his son to save us. We desperately need this salt and this light. We can't live without it. 
Next, salt and light does come in from outside this world to save us. Jesus is the salt and light who comes in the world to save us. It, it doesn't say it explicitly in this in the in the thir- verses 13 through 16 part of the passage, but it just said it through the whole Beatitudes. The salt and the light that has come in to save us, transformed us, and filled us is the blessing that we have received. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is ours. The mercy, the comfort, the identity as God's children, we are filled with the blessings of God. Now, now, he tells us, we are lamps not meant to be hidden. Because inside of us is a light to shine. A light of blessing. A light of the blessings of God. We ourselves are not the light. Elsewhere we know that Jesus is the light of the world. We are lamps that carry that light. We're blessed to be a blessing. When Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's saying a few things. He's saying that he's the truth. He's saying that he illuminates things. It it also means he's gloriously good. He's holy and beautiful. He's the ideal that we never otherwise found in ourselves or in the world. It also means that this light is what guides us. It guides us to reality. He is the way that we can see everything in its true light. And he guides us through this life. Light does a lot. And it's also a claim that separates Christianity from all others. All other religious leaders said that they point to the light. Jesus says he is the light. That's a, that's a pretty stark difference. Jesus is the one who comes into the world from outside and he holds it together and he renews it, he redeems it, he reconciles it. For he is the ideal come into this world, into the real. Finally, you and I become salt and light when we trust Jesus and we receive those those blessings. He gave us this image of a lamp. His light comes into us and shines from us. His goodness, goodness in us does its work. Three things, three, three of those works that I'll mention very quickly. First, salt and light expose decay and darkness. When you walk around as the light in your school, in your work, in your family, you reveal things. You reveal dishonesty or gossip or racism or corruption. When you show up as the light, these things are seen as for what they are. And when you're operating in the light without defensiveness, without ego or striving or fear, everything is seen for what it is, good and bad. Secondly, if you shine the light of Christ, you bring joy to others. There's a word good in this passage, and there's two different Greek words for good. Agathos means quality, the quality of goodness, but kalos means beautiful, beautiful. And that's the word that's used here, beautiful. Salt is not just a preservative, 
it brings flavor. It's the original seasoning. Light, light exposes color. And that kind of beauty, the, the beauty of Christ's presence, it shines a light on all things around you. And things are seen in their real beauty. You see this beauty, you see this, this flavor when you care about others, when you love them the way you're loved. That's being the light. And it's actually Christ in you loving others. And it's more than anything, more than anything else in the world, it's what people need to be loved. Finally, to be salt and light means that you work together with others who are salt and light. One lamp is good, but you, you don't light up a baseball stadium unless you're the sun itself in a day game, but you don't light up a baseball stadium with one light. There are hundreds of them shining together to really light things up. One grain of, sand, one grain of salt doesn't do a whole lot in and of itself. It's a whole bunch of salt together that brings flavor and protection. We need to be together in this. It's so important to be part of a church where the light and the, and the, and the saltiness of us can really affect the world to help each other to be salt and light and to work together as the salt and the light. All of this, though, all this passage comes down to are you lighting up the world? Are you bringing the flavor? We're just lamps. Is, is, is the light lit up in you? It, can you characterize your life as blessed? Not by the world's measure of blessing, by wealth and health and comfort, the normal standard ways of blessings, but by the blessings of the Beatitudes. You can't manufacture that light in yourself. You can't, it's no good being a, a salt substitute. You have to be lit and made salty by the one who has come to us. Matt and Kim and I talked for a while about whether to sing that song that was popular but maybe a little overplayed a, a few decades ago, Shine, Jesus, Shine. Um, and I hope you liked it. I know I'm, I'm imagining some of you in, oh. But uh, you, we couldn't get away from what the word said in regards to this passage. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Set our hearts on fire. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Jesus comes and he meets us. He answers us. He saves us. And, and his spirit fills us. He makes us the preservative and the flavoring in this world. And he makes us the presence of his light in this world. And we become ourselves salt and light. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be smiling we are the true realists, equipped to face even the hardest parts of reality. 
of the world and of our own selves and of our own sin because we also know the light of Christ, His forgiveness and grace and love, His mercy and comfort and the kingdom. It makes us people who know and bear the cross of Jesus. But we also know and live in the present hope of the resurrection from the dead that we see in Jesus. We face the real without ever becoming cynical pessimists. And we also know the ideal that is like no other. The hope of God come for our salvation in the greatest love we could ever know. We are broken, poor, and mourning, and meek, and we are blessed beyond all measure. And just there, just there, we are a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, um, it, it's a challenge to be told to be salt and light. Help us to know that we can only be that as we have received the blessing of you, of your salvation through your Son, the blessing that though we are poor in spirit and mourning and meek, and hungering and thirsting for what is right, that, Lord, you bless us. And God, in receiving that blessing, may we also carry it to others. Just as you promised Abraham so long ago that he would be blessed to be a blessing, we know that that was through your Son. That blessing came to all of us. And Lord, through him, may we be a blessing. May we be salt. May may we be light to others and to this world. Lord, we thank you for your word. Guide us in it as we live day to day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.